Oh, hello. Welcome to Football Fives. I'm Chris Nee, and I'm in charge of these three, so let's meet them. First up is Ryan Keeney. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Chris. You all right? I'm all right. Happy New Year to you, my friend. Thank you very much, my friend. Happy New Year to you, too. Next, we have David Hartrick. Say hello, JV. Do down. I've got a mouthful of crumble. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't want to uh, reveal too much magic here, but I deliberately put Dave second instead of third because of that. Um, finally, Daniel Story, how are you, Dan? Very well, you? I'm all right. Um, we we have a tournament special this week. So what we'll do is have five questions about uh, FIFA TM, World Cup TM, 2006 TM in Germany. Good World Cup, fellas? Yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah. That's about the size of it, isn't it? But we'll, we'll go into a bit of depth uh, shortly. <laughs> um, because, as you know, I'm all about having a bit of fun in the intros. Uh, I looked up which songs were number one in the UK charts on our birthdays in 2006. Uh, Ryan, are you a Scissor Sisters fan? Uh, I am comfortably numb to their music. Nice. Good. References. Thanks. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, Laura, they're all right. Laura was yeah. all right. Animatronic. Laura by them was good. Uh, okay, I thought you were like trying to name a member of the I band. mean, that's disputable. Uh, yeah, yours, Ryan, is I Don't Feel Like Dancing, which is pretty uh, poor. Pretty poor. Nah, Terrible gratuitous like uh, drop G as well. Uh, Dan. Hello. Are you a Scissor Sisters fan? Uh, I, I'm not. Uh, I feel like it's... I feel like one of us should have Niles Barkley crazy. I know that was 2006, and I know that was a smash hit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but part of the join of those syllables is correct. Um, yes, this Scissor Sisters song was number one for four weeks, which wow. overlaps your three birthdays. It's like four Brian weeks. Adams. Disgraceful. Uh, Dave. Mm-hmm. You've got Crazy by Niles Barkley. Yes. <laughs> How do you feel about still- that then? I've also still got a mouthful of crumble. <laughs> That's quite the mouthful. I'll have finished this in a minute, I promise, listeners. Uh, I've got Welcome to the Black Parade by My Chemical Romance, which good. I don't like, but at least it's got guitars. Yeah, That's a big song. Good. Yeah. Um, let's get on with it. We've got like three minutes in. Uh, I've got Dave down to answer the first question first, so I'll stick with that. Yep. Dave, are you yes. ready? Question one, how did you assess England's World Cup 2006? Um, well, if uh, we'll start as we always do with the qualifying. The, the, the qualification campaign, England were, were really pretty good. Very, very professional, basically. Um, one massive outlier of a result in Northern Ireland. Hello, Ryan, if you're listening. Um, but apart from that, they did very well. And they didn't score bundles of goals, 17 goals in 10 games, but... Eight wins, one draw, one loss. 
it's England doing what England do, which is cruising through qualifying. But what was interesting is obviously we had Wales and Northern Ireland in the group, so there was a little bit of interest in this one. And there were some good performances in there. The, the Both games against Wales, England played very, very well. Um, but there was also a couple of sort of notable moments like David James costing us against Austria with that horrific 2-0 up and cruising and then uh, he had a horrific moment. Uh, Joe Cole was generally excellent through qualifying and yeah, it was it was pretty perfunctory. When we get to the tournament, this is where me and Dan are going to have a little bit of a disagreement, I'll wager, because I think you have to put it in the context of what came after and where the squad was. And I, I, I don't actually think England did too badly. I mean, we beat Paraguay, who were no mugs. We're a decent side when you look through that Paraguay side. We beat Trinidad and Tobago in a game I remember very well. And I mean, we were so on top in that game. We just couldn't get the goal. And I mean, it took Peter Crouch pulling those dreadlocks for us to make the breakthrough. <laughs> and then, you know, we, we were cruising, but we played really well. And the, the game against Sweden... We played very well. It was just as typical. It's it's a game against Sweden for England, so it had to end in a draw. That's that's life. But in the knockout stages, I will grant you the Ecuador game wasn't by any stretch fantastic. It was a pretty turgid affair. But they did win. They did get through it. They did see the result out. And then we come to the Portugal game. And I know, you know, there's always sort of, sliding doors moments but the thing that that strikes me about the Portugal game more than anything else more than the Rooney sending off is obviously losing Beckham in that game to an injury was a huge turning point and just before that it was his cross that I mean it should have been a penalty really for England for handball so I don't actually think we did too badly I think there's no denying that we shit the bed a bit against Portugal because that's what we do in quarterfinals against Portugal. But I, I think it was about par, really, for that for that squad to reach quarterfinal. I think that's about par. But I, I'm sure now you're going to turn to Dan, who is going to rip that apart. Well, I might have my say first. Um, the qualifying was fine, I thought. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll throw to Ryan to talk about the, the game we lost. Um, but I, when you look at the squad... The, the the goal scorers through qualifying, just the goal scorers were Owen, Beckham, Lampard, Gerard, Joe Cole, all over the place. And then the squad that we took had those guys, had Gary Neville, had Ashley Cole, Rio Ferdinand, Sol Campbell, John Terry, Carragher, Hargreaves. It, it was a, a properly decent squad on paper. Um, and yet you would, Dave, I think I agree, you'd be hard pushed to um, hold them to the standard of expecting a semi-final. Um, because you know simply of the the quality of the teams around them, so I, I I've I've always felt that this World Cup was not just okay, but the realization that okay was what we were all about at that point in time. Yeah, it was it was a mm. funny funny competition really because the, the the Paraguay game was you know it, it looks it looks like we squeaked past the poor team in hindsight now you know eleven years on, um, but. Really, after going ahead early in that game, it never looked like it was going to go any other way. And then the the, the last knockings of the Trinidad game were uh, entertaining, to say the least. And, and um, Crouch's goal is the one that's remembered because of the foul that you mentioned. Uh, but Stephen Gerrard's got a bit of a scream yeah, after that as well in stoppage time. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and it, it it wasn't an easy win. No, it, was, it was a decent performance and it was a deserved win. But um, it was, I think, one of the most frustrating England games I've, uh, most frustrating England wins I've seen, I think. Just for the fact that it took 83 minutes for the goal to come. And it felt like it had been coming the whole time. Um, and then going into uh, into the knockouts, the, the the Ecuador game was just stodge. Again, lit up by a, a special goal from David Beckham, the free kick. Um, and the, the quarterfinal was just heartbreaking, really, in, in pretty much every regard. But um, I, I think this was the most you could expect from what was a decent squad. And I think this tournament helped to put that squad into its proper context. And certainly history has put it into its proper context in, in the years since as well. Uh, Northern Ireland have skin in the game here, Ryan, for once. Yes. That night. This is nice. Yeah. That that night in qualifying, uh, when when England decided to, to deploy a literal quarterback for the only time in football's history. Um, quite a moment for your boys. Yeah, it was... That campaign was quite a weird one um, because morale was was so so low until about f- until five days before or no four days before the game um, against England uh, morale around the Northern Ireland team and and just couldn't buy victories or or buy any kind of result. Um, I think we we drawn with Azerbaijan in our first game with them in Baku. Um, I think we drawn with. Uh, Austria, maybe there'd been one win, perhaps in the qualifying st- uh, group up until that stage, and it was just it was a bit rubbish. And then we managed so four days before the England game in Belfast, we beat Azerbaijan two 0 in Belfast, and suddenly everybody thought actually we're not as bad as we think we are. Um, we were somewhere in between, and then England rocked up, showing very little respect to Northern Ireland, which kind of understandable and and given the way that you'd blown us away at Old Trafford. Um, eighteen months before, that was kind of understandable. It, it, it should have been the game where Sven um, messed around and tinkered in his mind. But then, the flip side of that is it was a, a Northern Ireland team against the local rivals with a chance to kind of give them a bloody nose, really, and and put the willies up them in terms of qualifying. Because I think what? on that night you went behind Poland, didn't you? Mm. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, on the evening, it was it was everything that needed to go in Northern Ireland's favour did um, to to pull it off, and, and England were were awful. But as awful as England were, Northern Ireland were were dogged. Um, that wasn't a, a great team, but there was there was some really memorable players in amongst it, um, and I mean, like Jimmy Quinn was a regular in that Northern Ireland side, which tells you about the, the relative quality of the forwards. Um, other than David Healy, Gillespie was kicking around, Steve Davis, Aaron Hughes. There was a lot of, of important players there, and it was just such a, a dogged kind of uh, performance. And, and England had their chances, I, I, I think, when you look back on uh, highlights. But yeah, incredible for Northern Ireland. And a real kind of kickstarter. And a year later, um, beat Spain, and, and Healy scored a hat-trick. And it was kind of that wave of, actually, we're, we're not too bad, and if everything goes right, things can be built upon and built upon and, and the players may just be there to put together a qualifying campaign which kind of worked for Euro 2016 mm. I, I don't know what tinkering with Beckham spraying big diags out to Sean Wright Phillips to try and win in the air all night was going to achieve really but it was de- it, it had that vibe at the time didn't it it was we're changing the system but it's not out of desperation it's out of looking to the future 
Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of backfired a little, although in the long term, it, it didn't do us too much damage, um, certainly in terms of the, the World Cup itself. Uh, go on then, Dan. Did we, uh, should we have done better? Yeah, I think so. Part, partly in hindsight, because that, to me, I think that was probably the line in the sand of when England had a, not a, a big chance of winning a tournament, but had a non-ludicrously small chance of winning a tournament. I think you, I think you've been quite generous to England. Seventeen goals, yeah. Qualifying is qualifying, and you know Dave's done that, and that's fine. You know we we topped a pretty average group, and so be it. But you look at the squad for that tournament, and we had Jamie Carragher, Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, Michael Owen, Stephen Gerrard, John Terry, Ashley Cole, Owen Hargreaves, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, all aged between twenty four and twenty eight. Liverpool had won the Champions League in 2005, which includes some of those names. Arsenal reached the final of the Champions League just before that World Cup, which includes some more of those names. We had Sol Campbell, Gary Neville and David Beckham, all aged 31 as kind of the, the rocks in the, you know, the, the experienced heads. And one of them, obviously, Beckham was captain and playing at Real Madrid at the time. We had Peter Crouch as, as a kind of one of the best impact substitutes England has probably ever had. And we had Wayne Rooney and Aaron Lennon at age 19, 20 as kind of these, and Theo Walcott who didn't play, but as the young kids, as the kind of bright sparks. 2002 is always sold as the golden generation, but I think that squad's better. I think that squad it was as good as anything else in the tournament. I really do. And the fact that we didn't perform, we didn't perform badly or horrifically, but we kind of performed, as you say, kind of, this is our okay. But I think that squad's really, really, really good. Um, and... Although we won those games, you know, we beat Paraguay and it was kind of comfortable, but it was, you know, one goal went over them. Trinidad and Tobago were awful, so they were dispatched and that's fine. Sweden, we drew but topped the groups, that was all fine. And then we got to the knockout stages and it felt to me, and looking back on it even more so, it kind of felt like this was the time when Sven Goran Eriksson was kind of revealed as the emperor with no clothes because he was sold to us as kind of sexy foreign manager and we'll play this adventurous football. But we basically went into our shells in the knockout stages. And with that team we had, we should have been taking the game to Portugal. I know they had Luis Figo and they had Cristiano Ronaldo at the same age as Rooney, but we should have been take, we should have beaten them. Um, and I, I actually think we had a better chance than you're saying. I I think that's, that score was phenomenal. I think where, the, where the two arguments that you're making um, between you and Dave meet is I, I really think had we kept 11 men on the field for 90 minutes, I think yeah. we would have beaten Portugal. Yeah, yeah. And we had we had some you know we had Rooney's kind of metatarsal going all the way into the tournament, and then we had mm. Owen Owen's injury during the tournament, and we had Beckham. You know, we were we were slightly that Portugal game. We were we were everything went against us really. Yeah, yeah. Because I still, I mean, I was looking back at it today, and I I cannot sit here and say I am unbiased when it comes to England by any stretch. I'm still not completely sure about the stamp that it was a red card. Yeah, Bear in mind, you know it took I... place in the centre of the field. And it was, as I said, I think it is slightly suspect if it was a full stamp anyway. And we lost Beckham to that injury. It was just an ounce more luck and we would have got through that game. Yeah. I've never really disputed the red card until looking back at it for this. And there's just that little element of doubt now for me. Yeah, but as I said, it, the other thing is, is it's 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 not in an area of danger either. So I just, well, I don't know. The testicles is a pretty dangerous area, mate. <laughs> nah, depends what you use them for. 
<laughs> I can go on, man. I was just going to say, one of the things I noticed looking back, and when you, especially in the 2006 World Cup, was the uh, the wives and girlfriends of the England squad and the yeah. kind of attention mm. that, that went on those. How much? I think a lot of this and them being there is uh, part of Sven and and even his relationship with David Beckham and and David Beckham wanting his wife to be close. Mm. How much do you think that influenced how you remember the England team and, and even how they played? I think yeah, yeah. I, I to be honest, I think I think it was a handy excuse at the time, and the media certainly used it as a very very handy excuse. You know, they were the, they the were media absolutely. The the media absolutely loved it though, Dan. Yeah. I mean, if oh, yeah, if you yeah. watched if you watched the Ecuador game back, I I again I've done very little preparation for tonight's pod, which the listeners I'm sure will be absolutely delighted about. But I am nearly <laughs> positive that when Beckham scores that free kick against Ecuador, they show him running off on his own and immediately cut to Vicky and a very young Cheryl Cole sat next to each other in the stand, mm-hmm. who are celebrating together and linger on that for a good five seconds before cutting back to the players which when you think about it is pretty extraordinary I mean that yeah. it doesn't happen does it somebody scores you film them running off and film the celebration and cut to a replay the, the, the my difficulty with England that tournament is is that it felt like our best chance would have been really going for it because we had a we had a sensational defense that that defense of Ferdinand Terry Cole Neville I know we had Paul Robinson in goal but so be it. But that defence of those four was, in my mind, the best defence in the world at the moment, possibly with the exception of Italy's. Um, and and then, yeah, Owen Hargreaves, who was kind of, as Dave will wax lyrical at length to you about, was sensational in that tournament and was probably England's best player in that tournament. So that back five in front of the goalkeeper was arguably the best in the tournament. So with that, it felt like we could just go at teams and yet... As ever with England in major tournaments, I know we played well at patches, but it kind of felt like we were playing within ourselves. And and that ended up kind of, even though we were unlucky against Portugal, that ended up being our downfall because we didn't rampage on teams. We didn't scare teams. We had chances, but we didn't really scare teams. Yeah. And that's just, you know, we had a, a defence that gave us clean sheet against Paraguay, against Trinidad and Tobago. Two scrappy goals conceded against Sweden. Yeah. Um, and then again, clean against Ecuador, clean against Portugal. Yeah. Um, so you know, ultimately, and we'll, we'll leave this one here. Um, our downfall again was penalty kicks, mm. Mm. and they were woeful as well. <laughs> yeah, they were shite. Yeah. Right. Question two. Um, not really uh, guessing that England will be involved here. Start with you, Ryan. Did the right team win? Yeah, I think they did. Um. Just about. I'm I'm okay with Italy being the winners. I think not not particularly exciting and and not as free flowing. But a team that gets all the way through a tournament with the only goal you concede being an own goal, um, is a a team built on a defence. And and I'm alright that. And the, the you kind of flick through the attacking players, and there's probably more ability in there than uh, they showed at times going forward. But and Fabio Grosso was too involved for my liking, um, but yeah, I, I, I think I'd be hard pressed. I think there was there was some probably better squads and and player for player you could make an argument for some of those squads looking nice. But I think over those few weeks, I, I think Italy were pretty formidable. I think my my doubt with Italy, and I, 
we we're in the habit of saying uh, yes to this whenever we ask this question. This is where I'm going to break from that because Italy, it, it, it was Italy was the, the storytelling right team with the Calciopoli mm-hmm. um, situation and everything going on with Fabio Cannavaro winning the, the um, Ballon d'Or as well. It took them 95 minutes and a dive to beat Australia. They beat Ukraine, yeah. who were nothing to write home about. Um, and then, I, I, I don't particularly hold this against them, but they, they used the fullness of extra time against Germany. And of course, it took them even longer to beat France as well. And that's after what you would only really describe as a solid group. Um, and yet, until looking back on it, I was probably going to say yes to this question like I usually do. But um, the way France went through the knockout stages and got to the final just makes me err on, on their side as well. They they really grew into this competition and um, they, they seem to be finding their feet in tournament football again after a little sticky period that they had. Um, and they, the group wasn't great. But in the knockouts, they were sensational, and Zidane largely drove that for them. You know, they they beat Spain three one. They had that brilliant one nil win against Brazil. They beat Portugal one nil as well, um, and then they made such a big contribution to that that great final. Um, so I, I think out of the little clutch of teams that that you'd be able to make an argument for here, Italy are in there without a doubt. France are the the ones for me. And then there are a couple of others who um, hopefully Dave or Dan will, will pick up on. Um, but the, the fact that France were so imperious in the, in the knockout stages and, and got to the final, and I think if they'd been brilliant all the way to the semi-final and lost, I, I wouldn't be making this case. But they got to the final. They got all the way through the final. Um, and I, I just think through the tournament, they were better than a very decent Italy side. Dan, uh, 2006. This tournament was beyond doubt a, a tournament. It was recent World Cups have been low scoring, and it, it some of them, although we love the World Cups, have been poor editions of the tournament. I think it's fair to say this was a low scoring tournament, but it was it, it felt like that was through defensive expertise rather than kind of just caginess, um, and. Having praised England's defence, Italy's was absolutely magnificent. Um, like, I mean, Cannavaro, for example, won World Player of the Year this year, which is unusual for a defender to win it. But that was because of the World Cup and because of how he played and how Italy played as a team. I, I'm like you. I'm, I'm tempted to try and take it off them. But then the thing that swings it in their favour for me is that in the extra time against Germany, and I know we might talk about this game later, I can't remember, but in extra time against yes. Germany, they went for it. They actually surprised Germany by going for it in extra time and created chances and scored two goals and basically left the hosts, and I guess at that point favourites, pretty shell-shocked. Um, and that kind of swings it for me to go, yeah, fair enough. If you beat, I think if you beat the hosts and... Um, you surprise them with a tactic and a very un-Italian stereotypically tactic. You kind of deserve what you get. Um, that said, there's no doubt that their their route to their route to the so they beat on the way to the semi-finals. They beat Australia, Ghana, Ukraine, and Czech Republic. 
which is the sort of route that you could only dream of. Um, whereas France beat <laughs> Togo, fair enough, in the group, but then Spain, Brazil, Portugal. Um, so France will probably beat better teams. And do I think Italy would have got past Brazil? Probably not. But uh, having played as they did and having ground it out as they did, fair play to them. Dave? Mm, I, I am usually on this question, I have quite a clear answer. And I really go back and forth on this. I think the one thing that I think is unequivocal is I think the best two teams in this tournament were in the final. I think with Italy, I think you're being incredibly harsh about the Australia result because remember they had Matarazzi sent off, shouldn't have been sent off, really early doors, had to completely change the tactics. And yeah, it was a ridiculous penalty at the end, but I don't think you could deny them that victory. They swept Ukraine aside, which is exactly what they had to do. Dan, you're exactly right. We'll talk about the semi-final in a bit more detail in a bit. But they they went for it in extra time. They did a containing job for most of the game while also trying to play a little bit on the counter for 90 minutes. Then they did go for it in extra time. And they played really well in the final as well. But then you look at then you look at France's run, as you've said, and they beat a very emerging Spain side who were two years away from being well on the path to being the best side in the world. Uh, that that game against Brazil, the level of sort of technical quality in that game was so high. I mean, it really was fine margins that game. That was the and day I mean, we played Portugal, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was the that that's the only time uh, in in France competition that Zidane assisted Henri. Um, and what a time to you know what a time to pull off your one and only one and what a pass and what a goal that was by the way as well. Then they played very well against Portugal. I thought they were always in control against Portugal. So I I can genuinely and truly I can make a case for both. So in terms of going back to the question, did the right team win? Probably, but ask me tomorrow and I might say no. I, I honestly think there's a cigarette paper between them, to be perfectly with you, you know. Dan, where are Germany in this mix? I remember Germany, you know, looking back, obviously I don't have a photographic memory for every tournament, but I remember Germany as um, kind of more exciting and better than they were. I suspect largely because of the the opening game, yeah. which was a riot. Um, but if you look at their squad now, you know, you've got Podolski, age 21, Mertesacker, 21, Schweinsteiger, 21, Adonko, 22, Lahm, 22. It was a very young squad. It was... It was a it was kind of one too was, early for them, wasn't it? It was that they were a little bit further down the path than Spain were. Yeah, that's the difference. And they yeah. they again, I'll talk about them a little bit more in the next answer. But they they weren't quite there yet. They were not at their their first eleven wasn't as good as Italy or France, and their squad wasn't as good as Italy or France. And that's why I think you can unequivocally say the best two teams in this tournament. I could make saying that I could make a case for Brazil in truth, but I do think really the best two teams in this tournament were definitely in the final. But I, I, I genuinely I can't really split them. Yeah, the other, anyone else the in the conversation for you, right? No, I don't think so. I've, there's a little part of me kind of was. Mentioned a bit of Portugal. Mm. Um, and I know that they right, kind yeah. of 
Yeah, they, they, and especially after two thousand and four, and the way they responded, and and have having a pretty incredible group of players. Um, they, they probably in the mix, and and although when we talk about their game against the Netherlands and um, some of the other performances, they weren't particularly at their best, but as a group of of players, um, they were very much strong contenders. I think at the time, and have fallen away a bit in recent years, but at that time they had Figo, Deco, Ronaldo um, mm-hmm. in behind whoever, Paletta, I think the striker, um, or Simao, if he... Um, so, yeah, I think they were, were decent. The yeah. other, I think, the the other team it's just worth touching on that were in a slightly funny position was that was Argentina, yeah, who I've had this real... Most. who had this real mix of players who were just the other side of their peak and players who were... Not quite, yeah, yet. So they had, you know, like people like a really young Tevez and Messi there, but also a sort of, you know, Serene and Ayala and Raquel May, who were all starting to creak a little bit. So they, but they were incredibly exciting to watch. But again, I don't think they were at quite the same level as Italy or France. I, I had Portugal down basically after, after, after France because. They had four, maybe even five of of the of the port. Yeah, I think they had five. So they would have had um, Deco, Paulo Ferreira, Ricardo Carvalho, Helder Postiga, and Ricardo Costa. I think of the of the te- the Porto team that won the Champions League two years before. Um, they had Cristiano Ronaldo at twenty one, who was kind of the up and coming star. Just had his first excellent season at Manchester United, um, and then they just. They had Luis Figo as a, kind of in his Zidane tournament as the kind of the captain at I think he was thirty two or thirty three, and then they just basically took a load of strikers, none of which were good enough, um, and it was that lack of a striker which basically stopped them winning the tournament. Um, their their midfield and defence was that unit was absolutely excellent, but they just didn't have as ever with Portugal until Ronaldo turned into a centre forward. They just didn't have enough. I'll come straight to you for question three, Dan. Mm-hmm. What was your favourite match of the tournament? I've picked uh, Spain versus France, which, as I said before, this the knockout stage of this tournament were incredibly defensive. The 15 matches that mattered, so without the third, fourth place playoff, um, only one of them had more than three goals, uh, and I've chosen that game. Um, and only four had more than two goals, which out of 15 games is... Slightly, I mean, they. It should be said there were a lot of intriguing nil-nil draws, as England Portugal was. They, they weren't. They weren't awful games, but they were defensive games. Um, France v Spain for me was was excellent because it was this. It was a clash of complete clash of styles. Um, Spain were, as Dave mentioned, were doing their the basically starting their ticker tacker stuff, and um, they hadn't quite fine tuned it, but it was still excellent. Um, and France were playing this incredibly direct game where they get, effectively get the ball. Either one of the uh, central midfielders or centre-backs would look to find Henri over the top, or they'd get the ball to Zidane and he'd look to play a ball through to Thierry Henry. And that was effectively their one tactic. Um, they did the same to Frank Ribéry as well on the other side occasionally, but it was basically get it to Henri. And, and he was, if not the, one, certainly one of the best attackers in the world at that point, obviously. Um and France made it work. Via, Via scored a penalty, opened them up, and everyone kind of thought that France, that Spain would just kind of pass, pass, pass France to death and wear them down. But France did this direct football. Uh, Zidane, I think Zidane played through Ribéry and he rounded the keeper. 
Vieira then scored a header and then Zidane very late on kind of burst through and and scored a goal which kind of made his mark on the tournament because uh, in the group stages he was a slightly sluggish um, but he came you know mm. absolutely came into his own in the knockout stages so that was um, one of the games I remember of that knockout stages and actually if I'm honest there aren't many. Yeah, the, there were moments for him later on, of course, but the uh, the assist against uh, Brazil was yes. the moment it became Zidane's tournament, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and he people very quickly forget or very quickly forgive a, a very a poor or ineffective group stage if you do those sort of things in the knockout stages. Yeah, and rightly so. You know, that's, that's yeah. how much stock I put in the previous answers group stage. It's like, once you're through, I'll judge you on yeah. your knockouts, yeah. pretty much, unless it's that... Really that, scraping through that Spain side as well. They were emerging, but they were uh, they were still pretty frightening. Fabregas, Alonso, and Xavi across midfield, and then Via Raul and Torres up front. That's 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 yeah, decent. Good, yeah. We can confirm. Ryan, favorite match? Um, the, it takes something for a game to get its own Wikipedia page, and I mean away <laughs> from World Cup. Um, knockout stages are all on, on the same page but to have your own standalone page for the Battle of Nuremberg <laughs> is some going um, what a game Portugal what a game. Portugal won against Netherlands was just shithousery to the nth degree and it was just really fun to watch Like it was a repeat of the Euro 2004 semi-final um, when Portugal knocked the Netherlands out um, I think there was possibly an element of that. It was a different manager, but it was an element of the Dutch not wanting to go out to Portugal again and, and a good side. Um very similar team. I think the front six that started in both games, I had this in my yeah, front six in both games were for Pol- uh, Poland for Portugal were the same. Manish, Costinha, Cristiano Ronaldo, Deco, Luis Vigo, Paleta, um, which is, is decent. And the Netherlands went out to kick them off the pitch in, in two thousand six. Van Bommel was injured and in, uh, was booked in the second minute. Calabularos was booked in the seventh minute for a pretty tasty tackle on, on Ronaldo yeah. that saw him subbed off injured. Um, and it just kind of went from there. Um, Portugal started to retaliate. Manish was booked pretty early on, Castini as well, and, and he was sent off, I think, just on the stroke of half time, or if not, just after. Um, and it was just, it was silly, and it, it got silly. And, and as you were watching it, it, you could see that things were uh, just really, really. Um, escalating. The players were, the Dutch were trying to frustrate Portugal as much as possible and then as soon as Manish scored the goal um, they were just trying to kick their way back into it. Uh, a, rec- a record in a, a World Cup match for red cards where there was four and yellow cards where there was 16 just uh, shithousery and it was it was really good fun. I know that Dan's mentioned not being many goals but that was that was really, <laughs> looking back now it was I kind of wanted, you want somebody to tell you beforehand, pay attention this is going to be bucket loads of cards because it will be really really fun to watch the thing I is the thing is about that game if that game was played exactly the same today there'd be more red cards you know because you look back at a couple of those challenges that were yellows and i'm mm. telling you they'd be straight reds yeah they were be straight reds they were there was a lot was of that going like, on yeah there was i think um one of the keepers was Booked for yeah, Ricardo, Ricardo. Booked for time wasting and just the, the, towards the end, a lot of the Portugal players were just taking um, taking yellow cards to, to get over with, and and the Dutch were getting more and more frustrated. And that was 
uh, typified by Van Bronckhorst being sent off in injury time. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the rules are, are different, and the, the games evolve. There would be more and more cards, but even at the time, it was a lot, and it was really, really fun. The most staggering thing about that game, more than any of the statistics, is that Mark Van Bommel didn't get sent off. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's that's the thing. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he got subbed off in the seventy odd minutes. He got booked uh, in the second minute, though, didn't he? Or first yeah, minute, I think even. He, uh, yeah, booked in the second minute, and then um, I'm looking down through the the list now. Yeah, he, he was brought on just after Bularoos was sent off. Uh, brought off after Bularoos was sent off for Johnny Heitinger. So I assume that was a reshuffling at the back. Um, so yeah, but yeah, Van Bommel getting booked so early and then not. Seeing another yellow card is is incredible restraint on his part. <laughs> it's one of those games where uh, it, the players know exactly what's going on. Both both sets of players, and they're kind of astonished by it. And uh, was it Van Bronckhorst sitting with an, an opponent after being sent off, just kind of watching on in disbelief as this war carried on in front of them? Um, so it, I think it was yeah. just a battle. Yeah, I, afterwards, Sepp Blatter was, was Sepp Blatter and criticised the referee, whereas nobody else did. Like the um, one of the organising committee, one of the German FA, was finding quotes, said you know said that the referee did what he could to enforce the rules. Actually, everybody could see what was happening. It was only if we would blame the players for it. it was, uh, you know, sorry, blame the referee. It was the players very much up to mischief. Right, I remember Switzerland, Ukraine. Not having that. <laughs> that was that was not good. Um, I'm I'm going to go now, Dave, because I'm going for a, a literal fight rather than a football one. Um, there was another big old scrap, um, and that was after Argentina's quarterfinal loss against Germany in Berlin. Mm. It was a, a one-all draw, not a not a tactical or stylistic classic, but one of those games that's just so intense. Um, you can sort of feel the nerves from half a continent in a way. I love games like that. Uh, pretty close calls at either end. Germany's pressure as they tried to get back into the game at 1-0 down made for pretty good entertainment for my money. Um, even if it didn't necessarily create a highlights package you go back to all this time later. Um, simple goals, really. Uh, Miroslav Klose scored the equaliser after uh, uh, Ayala scored for, for Argentina. Um, it was one on penalties in the end marginally better penalty shootout than Portugal-England, but not that much better. Um, Germany's were, were pretty good, but uh, Argentina's were quite poor. And then they just had a big old fight after the game. Um, it's It was a bit... It was quicker than I remember it, but I think you don't see the full thing when you look back on it now. Um, there was not a lot of action taken afterwards, which I remember surprising me a little bit. Torsten Frings was given a, a, a ban for... Um, well, they, they called it punching Julio Cruz, but it wasn't really. Um, but if there was any other retrospective punishment, I've, I've forgotten about it. But the reason I picked it is because you don't see a lot of actual fights after football matches. Um, and it, it just uh, it, it proved that the tension of the game had been real. And when you're that into a game and, and you want to get stuck into the opposition afterwards, even as a neutral fan, and it's kind of nice that it was vindicated by the players wanting to get stuck into each other as well. Um, but what, what I liked most about it was just how quickly it kicked off after the final whistle. You know, while the TV team were starting to wrap up their coverage and just you see it all kicking off in the background, 
and I'm at home cheering them on um, while whichever TV team it was at the time was was trying to kind of go back over the penalty shootout. So it's it's it wasn't a world class game, and it's a pretty silly reason to pick it, but it provided all of the emotion and intensity and entertainment that you could want from a game. Hmm. The, main thing I, the main thing I remember about that fight was it was the first instance in my football watching life I could remember of a player A being sent off after the final whistle yeah. and B that player not having been involved in the game at all. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't remember the lad's name. It was a def- I think it was an Argentinian defender if memory serves. But he hadn't even been playing and he just waded in. So, lovely stuff. It's one yeah. of them. Nobody, nobody likes to see that. Looks at camera. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And it it wasn't just because I like to watch a fight. It was that was the fitting end to a game that had had that that attitude to it throughout. And I like games like that because mm-hmm. it feels like it matters. What's your game, Dave? Uh, Germany nil, Italy two. Which was it was it was a little bit of a. It, it, there's three minutes of this game that are just pure football, that are just such wonderful sporting moments that you just you get. As somebody who has no affinity for either, really, you just get completely swept up in it. First thing to say, up until the hundred nineteenth minute, this was a very very good nil nil. It was very. I mean, we we joke and say you know about an absorbing nil nil or a tactical battle. This really was a very good nil nil. I mean, the the level of quality was was right up there. And I mean, talking about that Italy side, it's worth pointing out that it was you know Buffon, Zambrotta, Cannavaro, Materazzi, Grosso, Camerinesi, Cattuso, Perotta, Totti, Tony, Del Piero. Really strong Italy side. And they went for it in extra time, as Dan has alluded to. Um, then gets to the gets to the hundred nineteenth minute. They get a corner. Corner uh, sort of hit too long, I think. Um, and the ball <laughs> works its way out to the single most overrated footballer of all time, Andrea yeah. Pirlo, who then does the best thing he did in his entire career, which is a no look little ball inside to Fabio Grosso, who's in the box, and he curls an absolute peach across the keeper, cross car, uh, cross layman, sorry, into the far corner. When you There's a really good angle that shows it's it's quite a strange shot because it, it curls, it starts way outside of the post, but the curl doesn't actually come till it's past the keeper. It's a really, really sort of weird arc on the ball. But then he runs away and does his sort of tribute to to Paolo Rossi, really, with the shaking of the head. And it was just an unbelievable moment. Loads of pictures of German fans in the stands absolutely distraught and crying, which is something I can get well behind. Uh, They've had enough glory. Um, And then it sort of culminates in Germany try and push on very last, you know, very last seconds of the game. Ball into the box, cleared out by another towering headed by, by uh, Materazzi, I think it is. And they yeah. just break the length of the pitch. And Del Piero's come on as a sub in, in extra time, comes absolutely steaming through on the left-hand side. 
ball gets played to him. And he just, again, it's quite a strange finish, actually, from where he is, because you would have thought the, the, the sort of natural finish from there is to go left foot and try and drill it either side of the keeper. It's You'd, you'd perhaps go across the keeper, but he takes it with his right foot and side foots it into the top corner. And it's just a sort of glorious, fl- unnecessary flourish of a finish. Yeah, if, just, if you're... If you're listening to this having not seen this goal for a while, I guarantee it's 10 yards closer to goal than you think it is. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is, um, I'll jump in here because this is my answer to the next question. This goal is my, my favourite goal of the tournament. Um, and that the, the, the bit that happens in between um, the, the clearance from Matarazzi and the, and the finish uh, is a, a really decent uh, interception by Cannavaro who, who put his head in where it hurts to, to win the ball. You know, fully thirty yards from Italy's goal, which, when you bear in mind the situation they were in, in stoppage time, one nil in front with a place in the final uh, at stake, was a really ballsy piece of defending, and it just set them on their way. Um, and it's yeah, it's just it's for me, it's all about the sense of occasion. It's, it's why I've picked this goal as our, our, my answer to question four, which is what's your favourite goal of the competition. Um, so it's yeah, it, it the, the situation was for me watching it in the pub, like most games I did uh, with my dad, and watching this incredible, epic, goalless draw, which then had that incredible moment with, with the, the first goal. And then just, you, you're never quite sure, even as late as that goal was, you're never quite sure that it's done. And there's something about finishing a game with a goal that's so much more satisfying than the final whistle. And that's what this was. This was Italy streaking forward, and mm. putting themselves in the final, taking a referee out of the equation, any more stoppage time out of the equation, a brilliant goal that confirmed them one hundred percent in the final. Um, and it was it was one of those goals that gets you out of your seat because it has this huge um, implication to it. What was your yeah. favourite goal, Dave? My favourite goal of the tournament, because I am nothing if not a parody of myself. It. It, it has to be Joe Cole against Sweden. <laughs> um, Beckham against Ecuador doesn't get the props it deserves, really. The problem with that free kick is that it doesn't go far enough into the top corner because it finishes about halfway up the goal. A good height for a keeper, it could be argued. Yeah, not Aesthetically, it's, it's slightly ruined. But the Joe Cole goal, we've all seen it a million times, okay? But there's there's, you know... The comment, the very famous commentary as well. Why not? Oh, why not? Um, there's just a couple of things really I want to mention. The first is, it's an it's a magnificent bit of technique. You know, it's mm. it, when you look at it to the the actual chest control, and then to hit the volley. He's got both feet off the ground when he hits the volley at the time to get the power behind it. It's just a wonderful, wonderful piece of technique. The second thing is, just watch it again and just look at the arc of the ball. I mean, it just goes so high; it's unbelievable. It get, the keeper gets his fingertips to it, but he he's just he hasn't got a hope in hope in hell. Um, it reminds me of that goal, although there was a little bit of shin involved in mine that um, Papi Cisse scored for Newcastle against Chelsea. Remember, we yes, goal of the season. Yeah, very much where he turns. He, I mean, that's from the angle that goal. Yeah, this is this is this is sort of slightly more sensual, but it's it's just it's a staggering volley when you see it again. As I said, because the technique is outstanding, the height is just incredible, and the goalkeeper could have been standing in the corner, and he would have still have struggled to save that. You know, 
Mm. It's just, just a really, and also I love the fact it's just a bit of an outlier as an England fan. England just don't really score those sort of complete wonder goals like that. Um, no. And it was, you know, there was, funnily enough, there's a very similar goal that Argentina scored in the tournament that I don't know if somebody's going to mention, but Joe Coles was better. But it was <laughs> it just just a brilliant, just a brilliant moment. Yeah. Brilliant, the thing brilliant about moment. it being, being an England goal is that um, I don't, I, I think the only goal, um, you know, in my own time as being an England supporter, I would have ahead of it is Michael Owen against Argentina, which says everything about how un-England like this goal was, because yeah. we don't we we don't score screamers like that very often. No, um, I mean the the screamers we tend to score are it's your Lampard slash Gerrard slash Beckham from twenty to twenty five yards, cracking it in from the edge of the box. So you you sort of vintage Paul Scholes goal. This is just. I like it. I, the thing that staggers me, as I said, and I'm repeating myself here, but it's just the technique involved. It's just incredible, and it's it's one of them that I honestly think it, it's one of those wonderful moments in football where sort of talent meets opportunity. Because I think you could you could try that again another ten times and not even hit the goal. Never mind, pick out the top corner in that fashion. Are you itching to go, Ryan? By any chance? Yeah, let's. I mean, let's talk about the 98th minute of Argentina against Mexico, <laughs> um, which was a better goal than Joe Cole's. Uh, no. They, yeah, Maxi Rodriguez's goal is the I think the one that's synonymous to me with the 2006 World Cup. Um, Juan Pablo Sarand's crossfield ball, which uh, in the moment before he hits it, there isn't a massive amount happening in the Argentina front line. Um, he's out wide with the ball relatively deep and they've got a front five at the time of Raquel May, Rodriguez, Tevez, Aymar and Messi. So there's not a massive amount of height or uh, leaping ability necessarily in that group of five. Crespo has gone off. So he's, it is just a hopeful pass to Rodriguez and his chest to control, like when he controls the ball or when he attempts to control the ball, it, it's not, I think, what he's trying to do. I don't think he wants it to bounce that much higher in the air, but it sits up lovely for him, and he just puts his, his left foot through it, and it is amazing. It's amazing with every language of commentator commentating on it, and they are there are lots of different versions of it on the internet, and they are all brilliant. Um, English-speaking commentators are, are surprised, and Argentinian commentators are the best with it, because they everybody sounds surprised with it. Rodriguez wasn't a bad player. Um, never, I don't think, showed it. Um, particularly he only ever played, played in moments, in though, didn't he? They, yeah, this, was, this is a prime example, really. This was just so, so good. Um, finds exactly where you'd want to find the, the top corner. Keeper has no chance. Uh, made better by the keeper's acrobatic attempt at a save as well, I think. I think if the keeper st- stood still, um, it's one of those ones where it wouldn't look so good, but actually the keeper going after it. Um, in my mind makes it, it better but yeah it's just it's so good and deserving of a, a match winner of, of a game to take your side through a, a knockout match is, is just perfect just just a lovely lovely goal Daniel I've gone for uh, Harry Kuehl's goal for Australia it's definitely not the best oh, goal yeah. in the tournament in terms of quality um, uh, there is something else that also happened in that game that I will mention in question five. But um, <laughs> Australia, 
This was Australia's second ever World Cup. The first one was 1974 and they went out of the group stage without winning a game and didn't really, by all accounts that I've read, kind of didn't really buy into the tournament much. It was kind of a a little bit of a red herring sport-wise for that country. But the 2006 World Cup, they very much bought into. Um, They, that kind of Australian, that golden army that, you know, with their shirts packed out the stadiums uh, they've always travelled in big numbers abroad for sporting events obviously the Ashes and the rugby and things like that but they hadn't really bought into the football side of things until this tournament and obviously World Cup qualification does that um, but yeah there were just <coughs> masses I, I went to the 2006 World Cup as a, as a fan albeit only for a week and there were masses of Australian fans more I think than any other um, certainly more than any other non-European country and probably more than any other country other than Germany and England that I saw. Um, and they had a right old good time. Uh, we've obviously mentioned them going out to, to Italy, which was, you know, a shame, but was their level. And I don't think they were, you know, too disheartened by that. There's a really good thing when a, when a country is quite new on the football scene, they tend to, because they've not sort of, because they've not been kind of, demoralised by failure and that hope and despair they kind of just take everything on the chin and just enjoy it for what it is and Australia in that tournament very much felt like that um, and yeah they, they needed to draw with Croatia in their final game to go through um, I think they they took the lead no Croatia took the lead they equalised Croatia went 2-1 up so they needed a goal with 20 minutes left and Harry Kuhl who was there he was kind of their, obviously he was their star at the time. He was at Liverpool at that point. Um, scored and went absolutely mad. Um, and the crowd, the, the commentary, the, every video cuts immediately to the crowd and it's just like a sea, a mass of, of fans just going absolutely insane um, because they never expected to get through. Um, and they did. And that was my favourite goal because I do, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a git for kind of the World Cup stories and the, you know, the not underdogs because they weren't awful, but they weren't expected to do anything. And as I say, they qualified and it was a right old good story. Good. Well, we'll stick you on pause there and come back to you first for the next question. But I just want to uh, make sure we're all aware that Cambiasso scored the actual best goal in the tournament. Yes, he did. Yep. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, a nomination. There was another that- game in Maxi, Maxi Rodrigo scored against Serbia as well. Another team goal, which was pretty decent. Matt. Yeah, that that's Argentina. The thing is, I've, uh, there's been lots of dominant performances at World Cups where, and Argentina themselves, you know, I think they did like Saudi Arabia about eight 0 and Germany did somebody about eight 0 Argentina absolutely dismantled Serbia and Montenegro that day. Absolutely tore them apart. And that that goal, that staggering goal, was not the only time they put that sort of amount that level of passing mm. together. It was. It was a, a absolutely brilliant performance from Argentina that day, and unfortunately, that was very much their peak. <laughs> Nomination for uh, Philip Lahm's goal in the opening game as well. Yeah, yeah it was what a lovely. moment! Yeah, yeah. Thorsten Fring scored a good goal that night as well, didn't he? Yeah, he did. But the keeper should have done better with that, Chris. That's right. He saw it a bit late, but he should have moved. He should have moved, and he would have got that easily. Good. Right, Dan. Question five. What's the one thing you'll never forget about World Cup 2006? Uh, it's Graham Paul giving three cards. Sometimes on, <laughs> sometimes on these questions, I kind of 
you go back and you know watch videos and read about the tournament and kind of go there is something I do remember but actually pick something else but this was even more almost more than Rooney's stamp this was kind of the standout moment in the tournament partly because it was an English ref and partly because it was just so silly um, Paul has done as all referees have and shouldn't has done an autobiography in which he um, he explained it and he basically said and you can kind of have some sympathy with him in that Joseph Simeonich is a player he booked three times and um, played for Croatia but was born and raised in Australia uh, and spoke with an Australian accent and he basically said the first the first one he, he put it down correctly put a C next to his name on the on the Croatian side of it and when he booked him for a second time or even though he was wearing a different colour shirt which obviously loses his excuse um, but yeah he put he, he basically he said that Simeonic said to him that's unbelievable in an Australian accent and that kind of stuck with him and he just put it next to um the Australian player rather than the Croatian player. Um, yeah, to be fair, not a booking. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But and the the, men, the the crazy thing is, and I know fair enough. They it's, it's the stupid thing after all that is that Simeonic then argues. You've got another one after the final <laughs> whistle, which I know they were kind of they'd gone out of the tournament, so he's pissed off anyway. But to actually bother getting sent off after you definitely should have. Been, I reckon he just thought FIFA are definitely going to give me the one game booking anyway, so give it to you. Yeah, got a freebie. Yeah, nice. But but if you're going to get a freebie, do it properly. Don't get it done for moaning <coughs> after the final whistle. <laughs> oh, classic. Good. Yeah, that was, it was a, a really decent game um, uh, with, with some special moments. And that was, was the pinnacle of it for me that night. It was just, I was in stitches. I don't think I stopped laughing for a week. Just oh, and not at, not at Paul. It was more at Simunich getting the third, the third yellow card. Which just tickled me something rotten. Right, Dave. Uh, just to confirm, I was laughing at Paul. Um, <laughs> I think uh, yeah, there's a there's <clears throat> funnily enough there's a few sort of iconic moments in this tournament that you may touch on. You know, Zidane walking past the trophy, etc., etc. But I, I I sort of hate to I hate to use an answer twice, but the last three minutes of that Italy Germany game were just basically everything I want from sport. We're, we're recording this at a time when the Darts World Championship has just been on and there was a semi-final between Michael Van Gerwen and Rob Cross that, even if you don't like darts, is just everything I want from any sport I'm watching. And that, that end to that game, that Italy-Germany game, which had been completely engrossing to that point... It's the same. It's just everything I want when I'm watching sport, and it was. You just you've. I, I was just so sucked into that game. I was just. It was so intense that I was just completely sold. I was. I was completely in, and then for it to finish in that fashion, and I. I the thing I ultimately remember is the feeling at the final whistle, of uh, almost being almost being gutted it's finished that just you know I would have took another 120 minutes of that no problem whatsoever and uh, I think that's that's the thing that in terms of a single memory that will live with me but I, I think just in terms of the overall tournament I think I don't think it was a great tournament but I think what you did have is you had quite a few teams under Italy and France who were of a very similar quality so as Dan has touched on if you were a fan of sort of really 
not defensive football in terms of South Africa 2010, which was a bit of a dog of a World Cup in truth, but in terms of real quality defensive performances, this this really was the World Cup for you. Ryan, you can go next. Um, th- three little things. Uh, the Umbro kits at that World Cup were excellent. Um, less for the England shirt, but I'd really like the Sweden yes. one with the little stars oh, on the shoulders. This is important like as well, English by the way. Shirt. It sounds trivial. It's not. <laughs> sure. Uh, Miroslav Klose won his one and only golden boot at a World Cup. I know he's scored a hatful of, of World Cup goals, but interesting. He was more of a consistent performer. Um, and uh, Lee Chun So scoring a free kick in the opening game convinced me that I knew everything I needed to know about football from Football Manager because he'd been good in that about three seasons before <laughs> when in fact it doesn't tell you everything you need to. Your I'm going World Cup was about you on Football Manager. <laughs> Quite self-obsessed, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, one of three. Little things. Mm. I'm going last because I've got the big thing which is uh, I'm I'm putting it down as the final in its entirety, which I watched by the side of a pool on holiday in Spain. Um, but it was just the most absorbing night's entertainment you could ever hope to have. It had the, the big moments. The, the Zidane penalty is, is the one that was on my list of best goal that I didn't mention um, because it was sensational and I don't care if he meant it or not. Um, and then, of course, you have secondly... Italy winning it in in the situation that they were in at that point in time, and you know, this is this is when Calciopoli was fresh, and Italian football was in absolute turmoil when they won this World Cup, and for them to do it, it just set them back on track very very quickly, um, and I've I've got a lot of affection for Italian football, so I, I I very much enjoyed it, and I'm a big fan of Cannavaro as well, so I enjoyed it in, in that regard. But the man of the final was was Zidane, wasn't it? Really, um, mm. he he had uh, to somehow come up with what could legitimately have been two iconic moments in a World Cup final. Now, had France gone on to win this game, his penalty would have been up there as well. Um, but then following up with that red card, the way it came about, and the 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 cinematic way that he left the field, um, it will never be forgotten by the world of football. And this is a, a, a losing player in a World Cup final, um, in a World Cup final where the winners had their own story to tell. So everything about it, the, the entirety of the game, the red card, the goals, Matarazzi was the, you know, the villain, scored the goal as well. Um, so I, you wouldn't have it down necessarily as a classic final in terms of the football itself. But in terms of biting your nails down to the quick it was right up there hmm. good I agree with that so we'll leave it there with the final then um, we will be back next week with something else uh, you can find us on twitter at ftbl5spod we're on facebook as well and you can email us show at football5spodcast.com say goodbye everybody goodbye, See you goodbye everybody